recorded live. Hello, this is William Fink, Christagenia.org, and this is Christagenia on Talk Show. Today is Friday, I don't even know what month it is, September 28th, 2012. Thank you all for listening, and praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, the God of real genetic, biological Israel. not some church organization. In 2005, Clifton Emmerheiser published for me two papers that I had written for my translation notes on the Gospel of Luke. Those two papers were based on Luke 16. The first one was presented here, for the most part, last week, concerned the parable of the unrighteous steward, Luke chapter 16, verses 1 through 12, I believe. I could be wrong. This one is the divorce discourse, based on Luke chapter 16, verses 16 to 18. This is all meant to develop a foundation for a general discussion of Luke chapter 16 that I will present next week, when, and I will recap some of the material here, and I will recap some of the material consider, concerning the parable of the unrighteous steward that I presented last week. Tonight is all about the topic of divorce, a topic which um, for, for every Christian identity pastor or teacher, you'll probably get a different answer. And I would think that's because none of them have actually studied the issue throughout the whole Bible without all of the preconceived notions that all of the various mainstream sects bring to the table. Most people in um, teaching Christian identity come from one of the various mainstream sects. I was quite appalled about a year and a half ago when I heard a certain um, supposed Christian identity pastor, he calls himself one, I don't, I don't know about that, Take a, a, who, who I worked with for quite some time in 2009 and 2010, t- take an extremely um, mainstream Judeo-Christian position on a topic of divorce. I was appalled at that. What we can't let our personal situation interfere with our interpretations of Scripture. Men have to interpret Scripture and the Word of God honestly, regardless of their personal situation. And men that are sinners, as I myself am, quite often, uh, men that are sinners should admit being sinners and and not twist the scripture in order to justify their sin and and set the stage for others to sin after them. I, I mean, all men have fallen short of the glory of God. All men sin. He who says that he is without sin makes God a liar, right? That's the way it is. We all sin. We don't twist the scripture to justify our sin, period. So tonight I'm going to talk about divorce and present my paper on the divorce discourse. But before I do that, and, and that's Luke 16, 16 through 18, and, and we're going to come to understand those verses, I, I, I pray, this very night. Before I do that, I'm going to present another paper I had written, 
And I wrote this paper a lot more recently. This is a 2009 paper. It's on the, it's on the um, discussion section of Christogenia.org, and it's called simply Divorce in the Bible. Yahweh God was, according to the Scripture, married to the ancient nation of Israel. Israel, the nation, collectively, was his wife. I originally wrote the paper which this first part of my presentation was adapted from, which is called Divorce of the Bible, to show that after the kingdom, the ancient Israel kingdom was divided, that the kingdom of Judah was indeed divorced from Yahweh as well as the northern kingdom of Israel. A lot of people in Christian identity actually dispute that idea. And Judah was divorced from Yahweh, even though an actual bill of divorcement is only mentioned in Scripture for Israel and not for Judah. This mention is found in Jeremiah chapter 3, verse 8, where through the prophet Yahweh says, and I quote from the King James, And I saw, when for all the causes whereby backsliding Israel committed adultery, I had put her away and given her a bill of divorce. Yet her treacherous sister Judah feared not, but, was in, but went and played the harlot also. So this paper that I'm about to present, Divorce in the Bible, was originally meant to show that Judah was indeed divorced in spite of the protests of so many men who say otherwise. And even though the kingdom kingdom of Judah still existed in form when Jeremiah wrote the kingdom of Judah was not yet put away. A twofold purpose of this paper is that the principles discussed here tonight apply to men and women in everyday life, of course, because it's the law and the law is applicable, as well as to the people Israel and their relationship to Yahweh their God. The nation is under the law as well as the people were under the law, right? Many so-called Bible scholars attempt to draw a distinction between the phrase put away and the word divorce. And they attempt to assert that these two words mean something different when in reality, they are both often used in relation to the same act of a man divorcing a wife, of a man putting away a wife, and we will see that. And by making a distinction between these two terms, many of these men even take it so far as to justify the act of divorce as if it were an acceptable practice, and we'll discuss that, and as if it were distinct beyond the act of separation, and it is not. The separation, we will learn tonight, is the divorce. At the same time, those men also misconstrue the relationship of marriage, divorce, and the promise of, the promise of remarriage that Yahweh has with his people Israel in the Old and in the New Covenants because it is the same God and the same people. 
These so-called scholars often start by identifying and attempting to make a distinction between two Greek words. I know this is going to get didactic. I can't help it. Between the Greek word apoluo. Apoluo is a verb. In the King James and other translations, it is often translated to put away. And the noun apostasion, that noun is used to refer to the writing, which officially documents the putting away. The putting away being the act of separation of a man and his wife. Used with another noun which means a writing or a document, apostasion is used in the Greek Septuagint, the Greek Old Testament, and in the Greek of the New Testament to describe what the King James calls a bill of divorcement. The bill of divorcement is merely a paper recognizing an act that has already occurred. The bill of divorcement should not be confused with what we call a divorce. The act and the paper documenting the act should not be confused for one another. This is a simple issue which is made complex because in relation to daily life, there are men who would be apologists for divorce. And because in relation to the biblical narrative, there are men who would claim that the tribe of Judah or the kingdom of Judah, which includes Benjamin and a good portion of Levi, was never divorced from Yahweh our God. However, in trying to create a distinction between the use of the noun, apostasion, and the use of the verb, apoluo, because the two words are truly from separate Greek roots, these men overlook several facts. The first and most obvious fact simply being that they are trying to create a distinction between a noun and a verb. Words that are two different parts of speech without examining how those words are commonly used elsewhere. Most of the, the, the diatribes on the issue of divorce are based on church, worldly church doctrines, sectarian doctrines, and on emotions and on personal experience. These words shall be discussed here, and, and the Liddell and Scott Greek English lexicon shall be the primary source used in order to do so. In order to gauge how these used, the words are used without partiality, because the words represent different parts of speech, we have a noun and a verb, the noun often translated bill of divorcement, the verb often translated to put away, one must assess how these words are used in the parts of speech which, which correspond, as well as how their counterparts are used. In other words, apoluo, the verb which is used to describe a putting away, that verb has a corresponding noun, which is derived from the same root. And apostasion, the noun describing the record of the putting away, that word has a corresponding verb, which is derived from the same root. One would not compare the words racing to walkway. However, one may compare 
the word racing to walking or the word raceway to walkway, right? Let's get the parts of speech the same, right? The noun apostasion as a verbal form, that is, apostani. Apostani means literally, most literally, to stand away. Liddell and Scott tell us that it means to put away or to remove. Much like the verb apoluo is used in the Greek Bible when referring to the dissolution of a husband-wife relationship. The verb apostani appears a total of 244 times in 227 different verses in the Greek Septuagint and New Testament combined, according to BibleWorks 7.0. However, the definitions of this word offered by Liddell and Scott in their definition of the word in their voluminous Greek-English lexicon make no mention of its use concerning husband-wife divorce. In other words, apostasion, which describes a bill of divorcement in the New Testament, the corresponding verb is never used to describe divorce in, in the Greek language. In fact, never once in the Septuagint or in the New Testament Greek, or in any other Greek literature, does the verb apostani appear in the context of marriage or the dissolution of marriage at separation, which is divorce. The verb apoluo is defined by Liddell and Scott primarily as to loose from, to undo, to set free from, to release or relieve from, to discharge, and finally, to divorce a wife. That's the verb apoluo that's always translated or often translated when it's related to husband-wife relationships in Scripture as to put away. And it means to re release from, relieve from, to discharge, or to divorce if it's used of a wife. The King James translates it, to put away. This verb also has a noun form, and it's apoleusis. And Liddell and Scott define that, define apoleusis as a release or a re deliverance from a thing. The noun, apoleusis, does not appear in the New Testament, and it does not appear in Septuagint Greek, except in three Maccabees, in the sense of being released from an obligation, but not in relationship to marriage. This noun is never used in the Bible to describe the separation of a man and a wife. The verb apoluo is all the time. This noun is evidently not used in the common Greek vernacular, specifically re related to divorce or separation from a wife. There is no noun in Greek script. There is no noun in scripture. Let me say there is no noun in Greek or Hebrew scripture. There is no noun in scripture for the word divorce. Because the word divorce does not appear in scripture as a noun. Only the phrase describing the paper which recognizes the act appears. And that phrase is a bill of divorce or a bill of divorcement properly from a scriptural viewpoint, one does not get a divorce 
since the word divorce by itself does not appear in Scripture, is it now? Anywhere. In Scripture, one issues a bill of divorcement. Now, that's a noun. But it describes a piece of paper. One issues a bill of divorcement to recognize legally that a divorce has already occurred. But you can't get a divorce because a divorce is an act. A divorce is a putting away. That's the verb in Scripture which defines it, which describes it. You don't find the noun divorce in Scripture. A divorce is a putting away, a release, a discharge. When you send your wife out of your house or when you leave your house, you're divorcing her. That's the act. That's scriptural. In Scripture, one issues a bill of divorcement to recognize legally that a divorce has already occurred. However, today, lawyers have twisted the concept, and that will be discussed later on also. If it were that the verb, apostemi, which is the verbal form of apostasion, the word which describes the bill of divorcement, or if the noun apolusis, which is the noun form of the verb apoluo, which is always translated to put away in the New Testament, if that verb apostemi, or if that noun apolusos were ever used in the Greek language in the Bible to describe divorce or the act of divorcing, then it would be fair to distinguish apoluo, the act of putting away, and apostasion, the description of the paper recording the act as if they may possibly refer to two different things when used to refer to the dissolution of a husband-wife relationship. However, those words, apostemi and apolusis, are not ever used in such a manner. And so we see that for whatever reason, and it was mostly cultural, when describing the act of divorce between a husband and a wife, that the noun apostasion, which is used to signify divorce when speaking of the piece of paper that merely records the divorce. That's the only time it's used to speak of divorce, is when it refers to the piece of paper that merely records the divorce. It's a, it's a writing of divorcement or a bill of divorcement, and it, the word divorcement is apostasion. When describing the act of divorce between a husband and wife, that the noun apostasion is used to signify the divorce only when speaking of the piece of paper that merely records it. But the word or its corresponding verb are never used anywhere in scripture or in secular Greek writing to describe a divorce itself. There is no word for a divorce itself. The separation is the divorce. The paper only records it. For this, to describe the act itself, the verb apoluo is used. And that verb is almost always translated in the King James Bible as to put away the act of separation. The noun 
corresponding to apeluo, which is apelusis, is never used to describe the act of a man separating from his wife. Only the noun apostasion is used to describe the piece of paper which makes an official record of the event. Yet, and this is the problem that we have in modern society, the paper is certainly not the event itself. The event is described by the verb apoluo, which means to put away or to separate from, in the sense of a man and his relationship with his wife. I would challenge any of the so-called scholars who have written papers on this topic, which hold the contrary point of view, that apostasion and apoluo, as they claim, is somehow these words are used to refer to two completely different things. I would challenge them to present actual evidence from biblical or from ancient Greek sources which contradicts the simple concepts I have presented here. Because if there is not another specific Greek verb used to describe the action of a husband and wife getting divorced, then apoluo, which is usually translated in the Bible as to put away, must be that verb. And guess what? There isn't another verb, except that Paul does use a synonym, afiemi. And afiemi has is not from the word for apostasion. Afiemi at 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 11 and 12, is a verb which simply means to send away. And in Paul's context, he clearly means in divorce, in those passages. However, that only reinforces the assertions being made here rather than weakening them. There was no concept, and this is the bottom line, there was no concept of a distinct period of some sort of legal separation and then the state of divorce in ancient Greek or in Hebrew. There is no concept of that. These are modern legal terms. The stage of separation and the stage and, and the, the, the divorce as an object or, or that you could get or as an act. To distinguish them are modern legal terms, and we cannot apply them to biblical writings. Because in the biblical writings, you had the separation, which was the divorce, and then you had the writing of the bill of divorcement, which merely recorded the separation. It documented the separation. That's all it does. It's a piece of paper documenting the separation issued by the husband, not by the government, not by the temple, not by the priests, by the husband. Therefore, the bottom line is this. When a wife leaves or is forced to leave the home of a husband, or if a husband leaves the home of a wife, she is put away, and as far as Scripture is concerned, she is already divorced. That is the divorce. In the ancient Hebrew world, the man himself would simply hand her a piece of paper as a record, a bill of divorcement. That's the law. That's the biblical law. Today, lawyers have complicated that. However, because lawyers have complicated that doesn't mean that it is any different in the eyes of God. It certainly is not. 
lawyers cannot change the perspective of God. Furthermore, we must recognize, and we must recognize as Christians, that where Yahshua Christ said, what therefore God has joined together, let no man put asunder, we have a clear indication that divorce must not be considered an acceptable practice. It is not. Even if we ourselves had been divorced, in the ideal world, in the perfect world, with the divine will of God, a man and a wife are joined once and forever. However, Yahweh our God, knowing that men are sinful in nature, in his permissive will, gave us laws governing divorce, which gave us the ability to divorce, knowing, as Christ said in the New Testament, that men's hearts were hard and that men were going to put away their wives. It's a fact of life that cannot be avoided. All men have sinned and all men have fallen short of the glory of God. And rather than twist the scripture, it is easier for us to recognize our sins and have our expectations in his mercy, which we are also promised. Now it must be added that there are some men who have realized that divorce is wrong. And since marriage occurs in a bed, and it can be demonstrated from Scripture that marriage occurs in a bed, and I will prove that in a moment, not at an altar. Marriage doesn't occur at an altar. Marriage doesn't occur on a piece of paper. Marriage does not occur in a contract. Marriage does not occur in an agreement, except in an agreement perhaps between a man and the father of a girl, as was the ancient custom. But marriage occurs in a bed, and we will see that, and we'll see, we will see the proof of that. The proof of that is in Genesis chapter 29. It must also be added that there are some men who have realized that divorce is wrong, and that since marriage occurs in a bed, not at an altar, they have encouraged people to return to their first partners. Yet that is even more wrong. Because to do so is odious to God, according to Deuteronomy chapter 24. And there's also a scriptural example for that, but it's explicit in the first four verses of Deuteronomy chapter 24, which I will read later. As with Adam, and the scriptural example is that, is that as with Adam, Eve, and the serpent, once Adam accepted the defiled Eve, and Paul tells us that Eve was a virgin before she was defiled in one I'm sorry, in 2 chapter 11. And the book of Maccabees, 2 Maccabees chapter 8, also tells us the same thing. That Eve was a virgin before the serpent got a hold of her, and she was defiled. Once Adam accepted the defiled Eve, she was to remain his wife, because he accepted her. Once he accepted her back as his wife, she remained his wife. Once we accept a woman previously married, we too must not depart from her, hypocritically using that as an excuse for our incontinence. So once we accept a woman as a wife, we don't turn her back in if we've accepted her, right? We don't put her away 
with excuses if we've accepted her. She's our wife, and that's the way it is. To do otherwise is hypocritical. The proof that marriage happens in a bed is in Genesis chapter 29. Jacob, who was an upstanding man and would not go back on anything that on, on his actions, Jacob contracted with Laban for the hand of Rachel, and he worked seven years. He had a contract. He had a vow, and it was for Rachel. And in Genesis chapter 29, Jacob goes into the bedchamber expecting his bride that evening, and that bedchamber is where she would become his wife, and that was his full expectation. Leah was delivered to Jacob instead of Rachel. And Jacob went into Leah and copulated with her. And in the morning, he discovered it was Leah and wasn't Rachel. And Jacob realized what he did and accepted Leah as his wife, but he wanted Rachel. So he agreed to work seven more years for Rachel, and Laban made excuses. Laban broke the contract. Jacob, being the more noble of the two men, and realizing that he had laid with Leah, realized that he had to keep Leah if he wanted to be an upstanding man because he had slept with her. So we see from Genesis chapter 29 that marriage happens in a bed. It didn't happen in the contract between Jacob and Laban. It didn't happen in an altar. It didn't happen on a piece of paper. It happened in a bed. Jacob, being an upstanding man, accepted that and accepted Leah and wanted Rachel also and pursued her over the next seven years. So marriage happens in a bed. There are many other examples of that, mostly in ancient Greek literature, and I've cited them here on various programs in the past, from the tragic poets and from the, the, the epic poets showing that marriage happens in a bed or in a bride chamber. However, once you take a woman as a wife, you don't turn her back in if you've accepted her because that's hypocritical. Eve was not a virgin when Adam ate from the tree. But he had accepted Eve's actions and accepted her as his wife, so he was stuck with her. And God told Eve, thy desire shall be to thy husband. Now to move on to the application of this knowledge and the discussion of the relationship of marriage, divorce, and remarriage that Yahweh has with his people Israel, as outlined in the Old and New Covenants. The verb, athestami, is used in the Septuagint of the removal of Israel in 2 Kings chapter 17, of the removal of both Judah and Israel in 2 Kings chapter 23, of Judah again in 2 Kings chapter 24, and also in other like passages in the prophets, such as Jeremiah chapter 14 verse 19. These passages, along with the words of the prophets found in both Jeremiah 33.24 and Zechariah 10.6, 
all clearly demonstrate that Judah was divorced from Yahweh along with Israel, even though a bill of divorcement was never recorded as having been issued for Judah. The act of divorcing Judah was putting Judah out of the kingdom, out of the home of the husband. That is the symbology which is being employed there. Jeremiah chapter 33, verse 24 states thus, and I quote from the King James, Considerest thou not what this people have spoken, saying, the two families which Yahweh has chosen, he has even cast them off. Thus they have despised my people that they should be no more a nation before them. So we see that the two families were cast off equally, Israel and Judah. We've cited the scripture here where Israel was issued a a bill of divorcement to document the divorce between Yahweh and Israel. But Judah was never issued that bill of divorcement in scripture. But the divorce was, the divorce had happened nevertheless. Because the divorce is not the obtaining of the piece of paper. The divorce is the act of putting away the wife. Of putting the wife out of one's house. Or the wife leaving the house. In this case, Judah was put out of the house. In Zechariah 10.6, Yahweh says, And I will strengthen the house of Judah, and I will save the house of Joseph. And I will bring them again to place them, for I have mercy upon them, and they shall be as though I had not cast them off. So we see Judah and Joseph, Joseph representing the ten northern tribes of Israel, Ephraim, Manasseh, and the other tribes, were cast off equally. And the verse concludes, And they shall be as though I had not cast them off, for I am Yahweh their God, and will hear them. Now, even if after all of this, one still insists that the verb apostemi must be used to describe a divorce, which it isn't, rather than apoluo, then this verse must be considered, Ezekiel 23.18, where it says, So she discovered her whoredoms, and discovered her nakedness. That goes right back to Genesis three, Genesis chapter three, right? It, it's the same term. So we see that it has to do with whoredom. And Genesis chapter three was a chapter about whoredom, basically. Then my mind was alienated from her, like as my mind was alienated from her sister. And in Brenton's Septuagint, in the Septuagint manuscripts, I should say, the reading is. And she exposed her fornication and exposed her shame. And my soul was alienated from her, even as my soul was alienated from her sister. The Greek word translated alienated here is apostemi, the same word of which the noun form apostasion is translated divorce. Judah was indeed divorced by Yahweh as well as Israel. But Judah never had a piece of paper. But the divorce was a reality. There are many so-called Christian identity pastors, such as Stephen Jones and all of his followers, who insist that Judah was never divorced simply because there was no 
paper mentioned in Scripture is legally officiating the act. And all those men are fools. The act of putting away is the divorce. Why do we confuse the paper for the act? The attainment of the document from the government is the device of men. The morale of this essay is threefold. Here I should say the morale of this presentation is threefold. First, it is dangerous to study Greek from a concordance alone and then attempt to contrive doctrine with an obviously incomplete understanding. Second, it is clear in Scripture that both Judah and Israel were divorced by Yahweh. They were both put away equally. And the many so-called scholars who state that Judah was never divorced are simply in error because they are confusing the record with the act. The act is the divorce, not the record. The third is this. Do not let your personal circumstances or the errors in your life manipulate your doctrinal beliefs. And I was also divorced. I was divorced several times, both officially and unofficially, because I was married several times, both officially and unofficially. But the government is not my God. Rather than attempting to contort Scripture to justify one's, act, one's actions, it is much more just and reasonable to simply admit to being a sinner. Many men would distinguish between separation from a wife and a divorce from a wife in order to justify their sins. They talk, they'll point to Christ talking about putting away a wife, and he who puts away a wife forces her to commit adultery. And they'll say, well, that's the putting away. Once she gets the divorce, then it's okay. That's the way Judeo-Christians legitimize divorce in the New Testament and twist the words of Christ to cover their sins. They're wrong, and they don't realize they're wrong unless they would admit that the act of putting away a wife, that is the divorce. The piece of paper is not the divorce. The piece of paper only records the act. The absence of the piece of paper does not nullify the fact that the act happened. While it is contrary to God's law, and it is, to separate from a wife without issuing the paper, the act itself constitutes the divorce, whether or not the paper is issued. Deuteronomy 24, verses 1 through 4, establishes what divorce is, and nowhere are the words put away mentioned. Rather, mention is made of a bill of divorcement, an official writ of divorcement, and the woman being sent away from the house. The woman being sent away from the house, that is the actual act of divorcement. That is the divorce. And I quote, When a man has taken a wife and married her, and it comes to pass that she finds no favor in his eyes, because he has found some uncleanness in her, 
Then let him write her a bill of divorcement and give it in her hand and send her out of his house. And when she is departed out of his house, she may go and be another man's wife. And if the later husband hates her and writes her a bill of divorcement and gives it in her hand and sends her out of his house, or if the later husband dies, which took her to be his wife, her former husband, which sent her away, may not take her back again to be his wife. After that, she is defiled, for that is an abomination before Yahweh. She can move on to a third man, but she can't go back to the first. That's the law. Thou shalt not cause the land to sin, which Yahweh thy God gives thee for an inheritance. It's a sin for a man to send a wife out of his house and not give her the paper. That's a violation of the law. The command for a husband to write a bill of divorcement was not to relieve the husband of any burden of guilt. Rather, it was to protect the wife and anyone who may take her in from being executed under the judgment of the Old Testament law. That's because a woman found in the home of another man. They could both be stoned under that law unless the woman could prove that she was sent away which is the act of divorce. The words send her out of his house in the law in Deuteronomy are tantamount to a putting away, and that is the act of divorce. The divorce happened when the woman parts from the home of her husband. The paper only records it. The record is for the protection of the woman. and any future husbands. Likewise, at Malachi 2.16, we are told that Yahweh, our God, hates putting away. He hates the act which describes the condition for the bill of divorcement. The verb describes the act. The noun only describes a piece of paper recognizing the act for legal purposes. If there is no putting away, then there is no divorce. Yet because Yahweh knew that men would separate from their wives regardly, he bade them issue the separation notice, which is called the bill of divorcement, in order that the wife would be protected. Now this is fully evident once it is realized that the husband doesn't need any such notice. The husband doesn't need any such piece of paper. Where there is no putting away, there is no need for a bill of divorce. The phrase put away has no use as a noun anywhere in Scripture because divorce describes that. Neither does the word divorce ever appear as a verb because putting away describes that. The Greeks usually use the word, the verb, apoluo, but Paul on one occasion used another verb, apiani, to describe the same act. It still describes the act of divorce, the sending away of a wife, of wife in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, or the putting away of a wife. The noun that the Greeks used was apostasion. Now, apostasion comes from words very close in meaning to apoluo and aphiemi. But apostasion only describes the piece of paper which officiates the act. 
the case that putting away and the divorce paper itself, which was only a piece of paper, signed by the husband recognizing the sending away of the wife. It was not an official divorce. It was not an official court decree like we have today because lawyers have complicated the issue. The case that putting away and the piece of paper itself that they are used to describe two different acts cannot be made to stand. They describe the paper officiates the act which putting away describes. There is no basis at all anywhere in Scripture for making a distinction between a putting away and the act of divorce. A putting away is the act of divorce. A sending away of a wife from a house is the act of divorce. In Scripture. Putting away, the act of separating from a husband or wife, is divorce. And it was conducted simply by the husband removing the wife from his home. In modern times, we have confused the act for the paper which only records the act because for most of us, and this is true of most of us, this is true even of a lot of people in Christian identity, sadly. For most of us, the government has become our God, whether we realize it or not. An act unrecorded is an act nevertheless. So now that we know what divorce is, I shall present the second paper I had written concerning divorce and which also concerns Luke chapter 16, which is where we are in my presentation of the Gospel of Luke. It's entitled The Divorce Discourse. Luke 16 verses 16 to 18. As recorded in the Gospels, Yahshua Christ often talked about different aspects of the law. And the law of divorce was no exception. In Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 through 48, Yahshua is recorded as having delivered a general sermon on the law, of which divorce is a part, and is mentioned in verses 31 and 32 of that chapter. Later, in a conversation recorded at both Matthew 19, verses 1 through 9, and Mark chapter 10, verses 1 through 12, Yahshua was specifically asked about divorce. And in this case, the Old Testament law concerning divorce, which I just read, found at Deuteronomy chapter 24, verses 1 through 4, is referred to. This law is not found in Leviticus, and it surely was not, as Christ infers, added to the kingdom law in Deuteronomy because Yahweh approves of divorce. He certainly does not. It's not in Leviticus because the priests are held to a higher standard than the common people. Rather, 
It seems to have been added in order to confront, as Christ put it in different words, referring to the hardness of men's hearts, to confront an inevitable reality, disobedience from the law, the lust of men, the hardness of men's hearts, that unwanted wives may seek a redress if one is needed, and a means to remarry, being legally freed from their former obligations, and so not in fear of being charged with adultery once they are found with another man. That's why the laws of divorce were put into place. The intent here, and I'm referring to Luke 16, verses 16 to 18. The intent here, however, is not to discuss common husband-wife divorce. The proper Christian perspective on that is found in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, where Paul correctly follows Yahshua's Christ, Yahshua Christ's instructions on the matter. Yahshua also mentions his teaching concerning divorce here in Luke chapter 16, 16, 18. Yet the context of this conversation is quite different in this chapter, and it reveals that in this instance, he was not speaking about common husband-wife divorce. I'm going to read these three verses from the King James Version, where Luke 16, verses 16 to 18, reads thus, The law and the prophets were until John. Since that time, the kingdom of Yahweh is preached, and every man presses into it. And it is easier for heaven and earth to pass than one tittle of the law to fail. Whosoever putteth away his wife and marries another commits adultery. And whosoever marries her that is put away from her husband commits adultery. In order to better run, now that was not the law, but that is the statement of Christ. The law, let me say, the law often does not reflect, and in this case, it certainly does not reflect the divine will of God. Rather, it reflects, the law reflects the permissive will of God. And we see that in the words of Christ, where Christ said that the laws of divorce were given to the hardness of men's hearts and to protect women so that they can remarry. That's why the law in Deuteronomy was given. But it doesn't reflect the divine will of God, where there is no divorce in his perfect kingdom. Every marriage would be perfect, right? In order to better understand Yahshua's statement as it is recorded in Luke 16, 16, let us look at a similar statement which he made at another time in a different conversation, recorded in Matthew 11, verse 12. And he says there, And from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven suffers violence, and the violent take it by force. The people of Judea, those who were Israelites, had been expecting the coming of the Messiah as they understood the 70 weeks of Daniel's prophecy or the 70, 70 weeks prophecy of Daniel, I should say, in Daniel chapter 9, verse 24. Their expectation 
is evident in the Gospels. It's evident in John 141, where some of the apostles, where some of the future apostles, I should, I should say, exclaimed that they had found the Messiah. I believe that was Nathaniel or Philip. I forget. I think it was Nathaniel. In John chapter 4, verse 25, where the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman at the well, exclaims that she was awaiting the Messiah. I know that when Messiah comes, he will teach us all things. And it's evident elsewhere in Scripture that the people in Judea were awaiting the Messiah at this time. Yet some and other people in Judea feared the Messiah and wanted to kill him at that time, as we see in Matthew chapter, the, the opening chapters to the Gospel of Matthew. Yet some decades before Christ's birth, Herod the Edomite became the king of Judea, 36 B.C., through murder and bribery. And the Edomites converted to Judaism circa 130 B.C., almost 100 years before Herod, and along with other Canaanites. And in the time of Herod, the Edomites gained prominence throughout the Judean government and the temple priesthood. That story is fully evident in the pages of the historian Flavius Josephus and the pages of the church historian Eusebius. It's evident in Strabo, where he says, he tells us that the Edomites and the, the Judeans were amalgamated into a, into a single kingdom in Judea. It is also fully evident in John chapter 8, Romans chapter 9, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, and elsewhere in the New Testament that Judea was a mixed race Roman province consisting of both Israelites and Edomites. Later, Herod the Edomite king attempted to slay the Christ child, and we see that related in Matthew chapter 2. The Canaanite Edomite Jews, as we're calling, as we call them today, denying the prophets and the word of Yahweh concerning his Christ, they are those who would take the kingdom by force. The law and the prophets were preached until John since that time. The kingdom of heaven suffers violence, and the violent take it by force. Rejecting the rightful ruler, Luke, that's the meaning of the parable in Luke chapter 19. And slaying the true heir, and that's the meaning of the parable of the vineyard in Luke chapter 20. And it will be discussed at length in the coming weeks here. In a vain attempt to maintain the kingdom in the position they've so unrighteously gained, which we see in John chapter 11. Here it shall hopefully become evident that talking about those violent ones who would take the kingdom by force, or as we see here in Luke, in Luke 16, 16, every man who presses into the kingdom, it shall hopefully be evident talking about these people. And then assuring us that the law shall not fail recalling his teaching concerning divorce. The Yahshua Christ was not babbling random statements. 
he didn't go from talking about the kingdom of heaven right into a, a, a divorce discourse, right into a discourse on the topic of divorce because he was babbling and jumping around from topic to topic. These statements are indeed all intimately connected. And furthermore, if the promises of Christianity were for all men, as certain Judeo-Christians claim, then how could Christ be concerned and warn us that every man presses into his kingdom? If the promises of Christianity were for all men, why is Christ concerned that every man is pressing into his kingdom? Why wouldn't he be happy? The truth is that Yahweh was married to the children of Israel. Yahweh promised to always remain married only to the children of Israel. The law and the prophets that governed that marriage were until John. Since that time, the kingdom of heaven is preached, and every man presses into, or the violent ones attempt to take by force, the relationship and the inheritance between the children of Israel and Yahweh their God. That's why Christ read these three verses. That's why Christ recited these three verses in the manner which he did. Yahweh was and always shall be married as a husband to the nation, to the people of true Israel. This marriage was initiated at Mount Sinai and it was recorded in Exodus chapter 19, which is perhaps the earliest recorded prenuptial agreement. That Israel as a nation was and shall remain married to Yahweh their God can be fully demonstrated by a review of some of the prophecies which discuss this very thing. Hosea finished writing his prophecies several decades before the deportations of the Israelites was completed. While Jeroboam, the son of Joash, was king in Israel, and we learn that in 2 Kings chapter 14 and in Hosea chapter 1 verse 1, the events of Hosea's life, as recorded in the first three chapters of his prophecy, are representative of Yahweh's experience with Israel during this period. Israel, an unfaithful wife, would be put away, but later forgiven. Once forgiven, Israel would be married to Yahweh forever. Hosea chapter 1, verses 10 and 11, and Hosea chapter 2, verses 14 and 23, especially noting verse 19, all demonstrate that. Here's Hosea chapter 1, verse 10 from the King James Version. And I quote, Yet the number of the children of Israel shall be as the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured nor numbered. And it shall come to pass that in the place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there it shall be said to them, you are the sons of the living God. This passage is quoted by Paul in Romans chapter 9, verses 25 to 26. And it was paraphrased by Peter in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9 and 10, where Peter also alludes to Exodus chapter 19, 
and the marriage relationship, connecting Yahweh's relationship with Israel back to that first ceremony at Mount Sinai. At Hosea chapter 2, verse 19, Yahweh speaks to Israel concerning the future restoration of the nation, and he says, I will betroth thee unto me forever. And in chapter, tw- in chapter 2, verse 20, I will even betroth thee unto me in faithfulness, and thou shalt know Yahweh. So at this very early time, we see Yahweh announce his plans to stay forever married to the children of Israel, despite the nation's unfaithfulness. And this theme continues throughout Hosea's prophecy. The prophet Joel, Joel, some people pronounce it, writing before the deportations of Israel, and therefore at least as early as Hosea, also portrayed Israel as the bride of Yahweh, and Yahweh as the bridegroom. Joel chapter 2, verses 16 and 17, for instance, and I quote, Gather the people, sanctify the congregation, assemble the elders, gather the children, and those that suck the breasts. Let the bridegroom go forth of his chamber, and the bride out of her closet. Let the priests, the ministers of Yahweh, weep between the porch and the altar. And let them say, Spare thy people, O Yahweh, and give not thine heritage to reproach, that the heathen should rule over them. Wherefore should they say among the people, Where is their God? At Joel chapter 2, verses 26 through 32, and throughout Joel chapter 3, the permanency of Yahweh's relationship with Israel, in contrast to the other peoples of the region and their fate, is fully illustrated. Joel was quoted at length by Peter in Acts chapter 2 which quotes from Joel 2.28-32. Isaiah. Isaiah wrote his prophecies during the period of the Assyrian invasions and deportations of Israel and most of Judah, towards the end of the same period where Hosea wrote. Those deportations began circa 721 B.C. and ended around 676 B.C. We see them in 2 Kings chapters 15 through 19 and 2 Chronicles chapters 26 through 32. And, and, and in Isaiah chapter 1, we see that Isaiah's ministry can be broken, can be dated, I'm sorry. Yet even though nearly all of the children of Israel had been carried off by the Assyrians and Isaiah witnessed it, His prophecies fully assure us that Yahweh shall be married to Israel forever. This is evident in Isaiah chapters 49, 50, 54, 55, 61, and 62. I will quote from Isaiah chapter 50, verse 1. Thus saith Yahweh, Where is the bill of your mother's divorcement whom I have put away? Or which of my creditors is it to whom I have sold you? Behold, for your iniquities you have sold yourselves, and for your transgressions is your mother put away. Put away, the verb, is the act, which we call divorce. Yet later, Israel is assured, or reassured, 
for thy maker is thine husband. Yahweh of hosts is his name. And thy redeemer, the Holy One of Israel, the God of the whole earth, shall he be called. For Yahweh has called thee as a woman forsaken and grieved in spirit, the woman that was put away. And the wife of youth, when thou wast refused, saith thy God. For a small moment have I forsaken thee, but with great mercies will I gather thee. That was Isaiah 54, verses 5 through 7. In Isaiah 61.10, we read this. And I will greatly rejoice in Yahweh. My soul shall be joyful in my God. For he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness as a bridegroom decks himself with ornaments and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. Isaiah chapter 62 then celebrates Yahweh's renewed marriage to Israel, which we have seen promised in Hosea, right? Hosea chapter 2. Where we find this, for as a young man marries a virgin, so shall thy sons marry thee. And as a bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall thy God rejoice over thee. And they shall call them the holy people, the redeemed of Yahweh. Isaiah defines the redeemed of Yahweh as being the children of Israel and nobody else. And thou shalt be called sought out, a city not forsaken. That was Isaiah 62, verses 5 and 12. In the very next chapter, from Isaiah 63, Isaiah prophecies concerning the day of vengeance. And the Edomite Jew is revealed to be the primary focus of the wrath of Yahweh. When Jeremiah wrote his prophecies, beginning in the days of Hosea, king of Judah, which we see in 2 Kings 22, 2 Chronicles chapter 34 and Jeremiah chapter 1, all of Israel, except those few left behind in the countryside, and most of Judah, 46 cities of Judah, had already been taken away by the Assyrians. And only the inhabitants of Judah remained after the Assyrian conquests, which we learned from 2 Chronicles chapter 32. Yet Jeremiah addresses Israel and distinguishes Judah, those of Judah who remained, since Israel with most of Judah was taken away by the Assyrians. And Jeremiah assures us that Israel shall continue in marriage to Yahweh even though the nation was cast out in punishment. And we see the record that the nation was cast out in punishment in Jeremiah 2.32 and in Jeremiah chapter 3. Speaking about the transgressions of Israel, Jeremiah 2.32 states, Can a maid or a virgin forget her ornaments or a bride her attire? Yet my people have forgotten me days without number. At Jeremiah chapter 3, verse 20, Israel is portrayed as a treacherous wife departing from Yahweh, her husband. Surely, as a wife treacherously departs from her husband, so have you dealt treacherously with me, O house of Israel, saith Yahweh. 
Yet much later in Jeremiah, Jeremiah 31, 31, and the subsequent verses, we are assured that the new covenant would be made only with those same houses of Israel and Judah. The new covenant, being a matter of prophecy, is explicitly and only intended for those people for whom it was prophesied. It didn't say the new covenant would be made with some other people called Israel and some other people called Judah. It said that the new covenant would be made with the house, the genetic family of Israel and the house, the genetic family of Judah. So throughout all of these Old Testament prophets, there is a clear and broad thread which informs us that Israel, the nation, which is the body of the people themselves, no matter where they are, Israel is the bride of Yahweh. Israel, that same body of people who had been put off in punishment, will once again be restored as the bride of Yahweh once they are redeemed. That's very explicit throughout the prophets. And there are absolutely no promises of redemption in the prophets for any other people. Redemption for any other people is not possible. Because of the term, the, the meanings of the term and everything it implies in the law. Redemption is kinsman redemption, for instance, in the law. Yahweh, Yahshua Christ is our kinsman redeemer. Neither can there be since Yahweh had only been married to Israel. And he came to redeem those who were under the law. As the prophet Amos said, hear this word that Yahweh has spoken against you, O children of Israel, against the whole family, not the whole church, not the whole world or anybody that believes, the whole family which I have brought up from the land of Egypt, saying, you only have I known of all the families of the earth, therefore I will punish you for all of your iniquities. Amos chapter 3. This is clear in all of the prophecies which have been discussed here. And no one from any other nation of people could make any just claim of inclusion in this relationship. On several occasions, Yahshua Christ referred to his followers, who were all chosen Israelites, as the children of the bride chamber. For we see Matthew 9.15, Mark 2.19, and on a separate occasion, Luke 5.34, where Yahshua states, and I quote, The sons of the bridegroom are not able to make fasts while the bridegroom is with them. John's Gospel record records the words of John the Baptist, which make a similar illustration. John 3.29, and I quote, He that has the bride... Now, that bride must be the bride of those prophecies. That bride must be the bride of the prophecies in Hosea and in Isaiah. That bride must be the children of Israel alone. He that has the bride is the bridegroom. But the friend of the bridegroom, which stands and hears him, rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. This, my joy, therefore, is fulfilled. If Joshua Christ is the bridegroom, 
that according to the prophets, as we have seen cited above, Yahshua Christ must be Yahweh in the flesh, having come to redeem the cast-off Israelites, not any other people, such as the Edomite Jews in Jerusalem. For that is what the prophets have set forth. The Edomites can only be among those who presseth into his kingdom. All of the other races and nations of the world who are not Israelites can only be among those who presseth into his kingdom. They can only be among those every man as Yahshua states in Luke 16, 16, every man who presses into his kingdom. Paul explains this very same thing to the Corinthians, explaining that they are a bride being married to Christ. But the Corinthians were Dorian Greeks, and Paul explains to them in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, their fathers were under the cloud and baptized in the sea with Moses. The Dorian Greeks were actually descended from the children of Israel. Paul explains this to them where he says, in 2 Corinthians 11:2, I have espoused you to one husband that I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. Which is exactly what Paul did. Paul found lost Israelites, the nations descended from Abraham, as he describes in Romans chapter 4. And he brought to them the good message of redemption. What Paul says in 2 Corinthians 11.2 can be compared to Isaiah 62.5. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 11.2, I have espoused you to one husband that I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. We see in Isaiah 62.5 and 62.12, and I quote, For as a young man marries a virgin, so shall thy sons marry thee. And as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall thy God rejoice over thee. And they shall call them the holy people. Thou art the holy people. Exodus chapter 19. The redeemed of Yahweh, and thou shalt be called, sought out a city not forsaken. The Dorian Greeks were not Israelites of the Assyrian deportations that we see prophesied in Hosea and Isaiah. But rather, the Dorian Greeks had migrated out of Palestine by the 12th century B.C., Whereafter, they took the Peloponnesus from the Danning Greeks. The Danning Greeks were also Israelites. The Danning Greeks had left the main body of Israel as a part of the tribe of Dan who left before the Exodus, leaving from Egypt and settling in the Peloponnesus. There are historical essays at Christagania.org which explain these things. The Corinthians were Dorian Greeks and they were Israelites. Paul was joining them, rejoining them in that marriage relationship which Israel had with Yahweh, with God. When Paul wrote to the Romans, he was also writing to lost Israelites. 
statements by Paul, such as those at chapter 1, verses 18 through 32, which te- where he tells the Romans that they had the truth of God and changed it into a lie and went off into paganism, things that the Old Testament Israelites were uprated for. And Romans chapter 4, which well, where Paul describes the faith of Abraham as being Abraham's belief that Yahweh would be true in his promise that Abraham's offspring would become many nations, and the Romans, it can be demonstrated, were certainly among those nations. Statements by Paul, such as those in Romans chapter 1 and Romans chapter 4, along with others, fully demonstrate that Paul knew that he was writing to lost Israelites when he wrote to the Romans. The Romans, by all accounts, having come from the Trojans, were of the Zara branch of Judah. They also left Palestine at a very early time, and that can be established in Scripture. At Romans chapter 7, Paul explains the relationship of Israel to Yahweh under the law. And he says, Are you ignorant, brethren? I speak to those who know the law. That the law lords over the man for as long a time as he should live. For a woman married to a living husband is bound by the law. But if the husband should die, she is discharged from the law of the husband. So then, as the husband is living, she would be labeled an adulteress if she were found with another man. Now, Paul's not talking about divorce. He's talking about laws concerning marriage, not the laws concerning divorce. Of course, the woman would be free if the husband had put her away as Yahweh put away Israel. But if the husband should die, she is free from the law. She is not an adulteress being found with another man. Consequently, my brethren, you also are put to death in the law through the body of Christ, for you to be found with another who from the dead was raised in order that we should bear fruit for Yahweh. Israel, being married to Yahweh, committed adultery in the worship of false gods which also involved the following of alien customs, obedience to alien laws, and the committing of other acts which violated Yahweh's law, acts such as fornication, which is race mixing. And Paul defines fornication as race mixing in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, and Jude also in Jude, in Jude verse 7. Under the law, Israel's adultery, Israel being put out of the house of the husband in the Assyrian and Barian and Babylonian deportations, under the law, Israel was made liable for death. Since death was the penalty for adultery, Leviticus chapter 20, Deuteronomy chapter 22, and Israel committed this adultery before being put out of the house of the husband. The divorce had not occurred yet when Israel committed the adultery. Adultery was the reason Israel was put out. Adultery is a legitimate reason to put the wife out. Yet, Yahweh had promised not to make an end of Israel. But contrary to his own law, and it was contrary to his law because an adulteress cannot be taken back under the law, 
Nevertheless, Yahweh promised to take Israel back for the sake of the fathers. How could he take Israel back without violating the law? He can't. This creates a dilemma indeed. Since under the law, a husband cannot take back an adulterous wife, even if the man she, her, she married herself to is dead. Deuteronomy 24.4 The Israelites, all who left Palestine and most of those who were deported, had been worshipping pagan idols and false gods and living in sin for centuries. Therefore, the only way in which Yahweh could satisfy the letter of the law and remarry Israel was for himself to die. For this reason, for this reason, Yahweh was manifested, manifested in the flesh. For this reason, above all others, as Paul explains here in Romans 7, that he may die in order to satisfy the law, his own law, which he authored, and thereby, once the law was fulfilled and Israel was freed from it, which we see Paul explain in Romans chapter 7, verses 1 and 2, the resurrected Christ, the resurrected Christ being Yahweh himself come in the flesh, could then have Israel for a wife because the letter of the law is fulfilled. Therefore, in Revelation chapter 19, verses 6 through 10, we have the marriage supper of the Lamb, Yahshua Christ, to the wife, Israel, which is shown in Revelation chapter 21, verses 9 through 12, to be none other than the 12 tribes of Israel inhabiting a new Jerusalem, the Jerusalem descended from heaven. Yahshua Christ has to be Yahweh himself. He has to be the father and the son because the son can't marry the father's wife, right? That is also contrary to the law. Now, the reason for Yahshua's statement, which he makes here in Luke chapter 16, verses 16 to 18, may already be manifest. If Yahshua Christ husband of the nation, husband of the people of Israel, accepts any non-Israelite or any bastard, which is a person of mixed race, into his kingdom. If Yahshua does that, then he commits adultery. That's what he's telling us. For that reason, he came only to his covenant people. I am not sent but unto the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Matthew 15, verse 24. Let's read Luke 16 again from the King James, because my browser has disappeared from my taskbar, and Linux hides it. It's a long story. The law and the prophets were until John. Since that time, the kingdom of God is preached, and every man presses into it. Well, there wouldn't be a problem with that if Christianity were for every man, but Christianity is only... For those people, as Paul tells us in Galatians chapter 4, who were under the law. So there is a problem with every man pressing into the kingdom of heaven, because the kingdom of heaven is only for the children of Israel. 
therefore, and this is a connected idea. This is, Yahshua Christ isn't telling us about the law and the prophets and the kingdom and suddenly admonishing us about a divorce and adultery. He's not doing that. Men can't uphold the law of God. We always fail. We're all sinners. God, he will uphold his law. He will follow his law. We fail. He doesn't fail. These, these ideas that we see in Luke 16.16 16 and Luke 16.17 and 18, they're connected. They're not disparate um, discourses that Christ is just babbling away. He's not just babbling away disconnected ideas. These are fully connected ideas here. The law and the prophets were until John, since that time the kingdom of God is preached and every man presses into it. Well, that's a problem. Therefore, Christ says, whosoever putteth away his wife and marries another commits adultery. Yahweh was married to Israel. And whosoever marries her that is put away from her husband commits adultery. Yahweh won't marry anybody else, and he won't allow Israel to marry or to be joined to anybody else. That's what he's telling us here. Therefore, the reason for Yahshua's statement in Luke 16, verses 16 to 18, it should already be manifest. If Yahshua Christ, husband of the nation of Israel, accepts any non-Israelite or any bastard into his kingdom, then he commits adultery. He's telling us here in Luke that he's not going to do that. Men fail. Men sin. God does not sin. For that reason, he tells us he only came for the lost sheep of the house of Israel. All of the nations to whom Paul brought the gospel message were indeed among the descendants of the ancient Israelites, and Paul certainly knew it. In Paul's letter to the Galatians, he made it clear to them that the covenant could not be added to Galatians 3.15. He made it clear to them that it was only for certain of Abraham's descendants, which is what Galatians 3.16 and 17 are really saying. It was only for the descendants of Israel through Jacob and not those to Esau. Not to seeds, but to seed as of one which are anointed. It's not only for Christ, because Christ is the mediator of the covenant. And Paul uses the word heirs in the plural, not in the singular. Paul also told the Galatians that they were indeed descended from Isaac and were children of the promise in chapter 4 of the epistle. The Galatians of Paul's time were actually Celts mixed with Greeks. Those Celts, along with the Scythians, were Israelites of the Assyrian deportations. That's where the Celts, not the proto-Celts, not the people who settled the, the western coast of Europe by sea, they were called proto-Celts by anthropologists. The Celts and the Scythians were the children of Israel of the Assyrian deportations, as were the Parthians. 
Paul explained to the Ephesians that Yahweh had broken down the wall between them and himself in Ephesians chapter 2. That wall was the laws concerning marriage and divorce and adultery, which prevented Yahweh from communing with Israel until he effected their redemption and died, disannulling those laws. For the same reason, Paul spoke to the Colossians about alienation and reconciliation. Colossians chapter 1, verses 21 and 22, Paul says, And you at one time being alienated. How were they alienated? They were put off from the commonwealth of Israel. In thought, by wicked deeds, yet now he has reconciled. How were they reconciled? Because they were Israelites redeemed by Christ. With the body of his flesh through that death to present you holy and blameless and void of offense before him. All of this is fully coherent with the statements of the prophets. For in Daniel, Yahweh assures us that the kingdom shall not be left to other people. Daniel chapter 2, verse 44. In Ezekiel, Yahweh tells us, I will raise up for them, meaning the children of Israel, a plant of renown. And they shall, they shall be no more consumed with hunger in the land, neither bear the shame of the heathen anymore. Thus shall they know that I, Yahweh their God, am with them, and that they, even the house of Israel, are my people, saith Yahweh God, and ye my flock, the flock of my pasture. You want to find a sheep? The sheep can only be Israel. Are men, and I am your God, saith Yahweh God. Ezekiel 34, verses 29 to 31. And Ezekiel Yahweh also says in Ezekiel 37, verses 27 and 28, My tabernacle also shall be with them. Yeah, I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And the heathen, or the nation, shall know that I, Yahweh, do sanctify Israel and only Israel, when my sanctuary shall be in the midst of them forevermore. Now surely, Yahshua Christ shall not betroth himself to non-Israelite and non-Adamic nations. Now Ezekiel, a contemporary of, contemporary of Jeremiah, wrote long after most of Israel and Judah had been taken away by the Assyrians. He himself wrote from captivity in Babylon, which we learn from Ezekiel chapter 1. He was one of the 10,000 first taken away by the Babylonians, which we see in 2 Kings chapter 24 and in Ezekiel chapter 19. Ezekiel was one of those divorced Israelites. All of the prophets in the New Testament consistently show the universalists and the dispensationalists to be nothing but liars. Once one understands the husband-wife relationship of Yahweh to ancient Israel, which God himself went so far as to experience death, in order to preserve. Once one understands the relationship of the risen Christ with the white Christian nations of today, which had actually descended from those ancient Israelites, it is fully evident 
at Luke 16, verses 16 through 18, stands as a warning to universalists. By embracing the alien, non-Israelite peoples, the universalists are, in essence, accusing Yahshua Christ of adultery or purporting that he would commit adultery. The scripture says, thou shalt not commit adultery. Exodus 20, verse 14, Deuteronomy 5:18. The penalty for adultery under the law is death. Leviticus 20.10, Deuteronomy 22.22. Yet when a witness is found to be testifying falsely, the false witness is made to suffer the penalty instead, as described in the law at Deuteronomy chapter 19, verses 16 through 19. Now where does that leave universalists? Where does that leave people who would include non-Israelites into the kingdom of God, those people who would help aliens into the kingdom of God, who would help them press into the kingdom of God. All those so-called Christian pastors and evangelists who go around proclaiming to non-whites and those of mixed races that they should somehow be Christians, that Jesus loves them, and that they may fellowship with Israel are all falsely accusing Yahshua Christ of committing adultery. Therefore, once it's understood that those who make false accusations are guilty of the penalty, we learn that the penalty for universalism is death, and that the universalists basically condemn themselves. Once one learns that most of the ancient Romans and Greeks and that the Celtic and Saxon nations of Europe, along with the related peoples, the Scandinavians, the Parthians, all descended from the ancient Israelites, one can see that the history of the spread of Christianity is fully consistent with the utterances of the prophets concerning Israel. Paul told the Romans, Romans 15:8, that Christ came to confirm the promises made unto the fathers. We see the same message in Luke chapters 1 and 2. He didn't come to refute or revoke them. He came to confirm them. Today it is manifest in this that the kingdom of Yahweh is the white European nations. No other nations are suffering massive immigrations of aliens into their borders. Every man presses into the kingdom of God. The violent ones take the kingdom of God by violence, by force. We're told throughout Scripture where the kingdom of God is. No other nations are suffering massive immigrations of aliens into their borders in a situation where the common citizens of those nations have no say in the matter. These are those who press into the kingdom of Yahweh, Luke 16, 16. All non-Israelites who would pretend to be Christians are those who press into the kingdom of Yahweh. The gospel is not for all men, not if Christ is concerned that every man presses into the kingdom of God and asserts that he shall not commit adultery. He will not 
put away his wife, Israel, and marry another, somebody besides Israel. He will not allow his wife, Israel, to marry anyone else, somebody besides Yahweh. That's what he's telling us in Luke 16, verses 16 to 18. Today, the Edomite Jews have, for the most part, and there are many other prophecies concerning this, usurped control of all the white nations of the West. And that's readily evident today. The vast wealth which they have accumulated through their anti-Christian money-lending practices, along with every other foul profession in which they have been engaged for millennia, have enabled them to do that just as they usurped control of ancient Judea. In these days today, had the violent ones taken the kingdom by force. In the wars of Europe in recent centuries, up to and including the Bolshevik Revolution in both world wars, and in the promotion of so many wicked and anti-Christian philosophies, deceiving the sheep. It is the bad, fake Jewish-controlled governments, media outlets, and foundations which have orchestrated the flood of aliens into the white nations, while at the same time promoting diversity and multiculturalism, all with the cooperation of both the conservative capitalist and the liberal communist factions in all of the major organized political parties of the so-called democracies. Scripture is being fulfilled before our very eyes, if only we would open them. Yet we white Europeans, true biblical Israel, and we are the descendants of biblical Israel, that can be proven. We do have an assurance. Our assurance is that Yahshua Christ, our Redeemer, shall not commit adultery. And so neither should we by despicably embracing any alien, foul beast who happens to have made his way into our lands. For adultery, the original Old Testament sense of the word is race-mixing, which is how Israel committed adultery with the Canaanite tribes in the Old Testament, not only cheating on their God, who is also their husband, but also committing fornication with aliens. And that leads me to discuss one more thing I had to discuss tonight. And, and this is important because this, um, this affects a few people that I know personally, and it troubles me greatly. There are people that I know who proclaim to be Christian identity and who proclaim to understand the racial message of the Bible, who acknowledge that they are married to people that are not entirely white. Yahshua Christ said in Matthew 5.32, But I say unto you that whosoever shall put away his wife, except for the cause of fornication, causes her to commit adultery. Saying that, he's basically telling us that it is proper to put a spouse away for the cause of fornication. Now, what did he mean by that? Except for the cause 
of fornication. Did he want to limit that only to the spouses committing an act of fornication? I don't think so, because that's not what he said explicitly. He said, except for the cause of fornication. Let me say that word fornication, pornaya, that word is defined by Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and by Jude in verse 7 as the pursuit of strange flesh. And there's race mixing. Paul, using the word fornication, uses it to refer to the event where the children of Israel committed harlotry with the daughters of Moab. The sons of Israel were fornicating by having sex with the daughters of Moab. Numbers chapter 25. That's the event that Paul is referring to. The biblical example is in Ezra and Nehemiah. Ezra and Nehemiah commanded the people of Judah to put away people of mixed race, people whose genealogies were unrecorded, because they were very careful about that, but to put away all of their Canaanite wives and people of mixed race. Divorce is approved for the cause of fornication. And that means not only if your spouse is committing illicit sexual acts, that means, as we see in the example of Ezra and Nehemiah, that if you find or if you know that your spouse is a race-mixed individual, that they are not white, and you come to the truth of this message, you should follow the example of Ezra and Nehemiah. Because divorce is actually approved for the cause of fornication. If you're married to a non-white, you're not married. You may be married according to the state. If the state is your God, then you obey the state. You're not married in the eyes of God. To be married in the eyes of God, we see the example of Adam and Eve, that your wife should be flesh of your flesh and bone of your bone. If you're married according to the state, to a person who is a non-Israelite, to a person who is not of your race, then you're not married in the eyes of God. You're committing fornication. You're pursuing strange flesh. You're coupled together with untrustworthy aliens, with animals of a different kind. That's fornication. You should probably consider divorcing that person. I would highly recommend it. I'm sure that your God would insist upon it. You can't be married to a non-white if you're a white person. You can only commit fornication with a non-white because that is an illicit sexual act. It is not according to kind after kind. You can use excuses that you have a marriage license from the state if the marriage license from the state controls your life, then the state is your God. Yahweh is not your God. Men sin, and men have violated Yahweh's laws from the beginning of time. 
We shouldn't make excuses for our sin. We should recognize our sin and ask our God for his mercy. We're promised that if we repent of our sin. That doesn't mean that you put away a woman that you've known because that's a hypocritical act. If you're sleeping with a woman, she's your wife now. Just like Christ told the Samaritan woman, you've had five husbands. They were all, all five were recognized as her husbands, obviously, because all five were slept with her at one time or another. The one you're with now is not your husband. And the woman knew immediately what he meant. And my interpretation is that the one she was with presently, she was not really sleeping with. She was probably pretty damned old and not interested. That would be my guess. But she was not sleeping with him. That's why he wasn't really her husband. Men sinned and have violated Yahweh's laws in the beginning of time. Yet Yahweh does not sin. That's why we require mercy and judgment. Yahweh both authored and shall uphold his law, as he has promised. If in the end there is one non-Israelite in the kingdom of heaven, then Yahweh has failed because he has divorced his wife and married another. And Christ here in Luke chapter 16, verses 16 through 18, tells us that that will not happen. Every man shall not press into the kingdom of heaven because the covenants are only with the children of Israel. Let Yahweh be true and every man a liar. I will be here next week, next Friday, with a presentation of Luke 16, Luke chapter 16, without all of the details of the last two weeks. I will attempt to summarize these ideas so that I could get the entire chapter into one program. Praise Yahweh. Thank you for listening. And good night.